Not me. I'm immune to propaganda. That's fantastic. <laughs> well, not all of us can be like can be like Gil. So um, I. Uh, <laughs> so the rest of us, you know, so we gotta us, do yeah. politics. <laughs> we gotta do politics. left the philosophy. I'm Will. Here with me today is Gil, Lillian, and Owen. Hey, y'all. Hello. Hey, guys. Hey, everyone. And for today's episode, we're very excited to be joined by a special guest, Professor Megan Hiska. Hey, Megan, thanks for coming on the show. Hey, Will. Thanks for having me. Megan Hiska is an assistant professor in the philosophy department at Northwestern, where she teaches and writes about language and politics. In particular, her work is concerned with questions about how political communication shapes and describes social collectivity. To this end, she's written about the nature of communication, about social organizing and social movements, and about the political dimensions of deep fakes and other synthetic media, as well as about the concept of propaganda. For today, we're going to be focusing on Megan's work on propaganda through recent articles that she has published. To set the stage a little bit, it might help to say what most people most likely think when they hear propaganda. There is first the negative use of propaganda that accuses someone of deploying a type of political speech that aims to trick, deceive, or manipulate a set of agents into acting towards some end. Much of the public sphere in the United States was flooded with this mobilization of the concept in the aftermath of the 2016 election of Donald Trump, where his election was blamed on the supposed proliferation of Russian disinformation. The use of the negative concept of propaganda can be found in every political tendency, not just you know, center liberal, but left and right. But what they all share is an emphasis on supposed powers of propaganda to block or distort are irrational capacities for either reflection or action. On this account, we critique propaganda not simply because it contains ideas with which we disagree, but because it bears a distinctive connection to irrationality by virtue of either deception or manipulation. We can call this the irrationalism thesis. However, there is not only a negative connotation to propaganda, propaganda may be understood as a distinct type of political speech that attempts to persuade or bring about the transformation of an individual's held beliefs. Manifestos are often thought to be this sort of positive propaganda. W.E.B. Du Bois famously defends this sort of positive propaganda in Criteria for Negro Art when he writes, quote, all art is propaganda and ever must be, despite the wailing of the purists. I stand in utter shamelessness and say that whatever art I have for writing has been used always for propaganda, for gaining the right of black folk to love and enjoy. I do not care a damn for any art that is not used for propaganda, but I do care when propaganda is confined to one side while the other is stripped and silent, end quote. Thus, a positive appraisal of propaganda is nothing more than the attempt to propagate or spread one's views to others. We can call this the individual beliefs thesis. Megan's project is somewhat different. 
She questions whether the irrationalism thesis or the individual beliefs thesis are sufficient for telling us what makes propaganda a distinctively political type of speech. Allow me a silly example to get at what is at stake here. If a good friend cooks me a meal that I find absolutely disgusting, I may lie to them when they ask me if I'm enjoying it. But suppose this friend catches me messaging the left of philosophy group chat that the tofu and rice in the original is chicken, but, you know, Megan's vegan, so I want to be respectful, that the tofu and rice were dry and unseasoned, and they yell at me, wow, you are really trying to propagandize me there. And I would, of course, respond, no, not at all. I was trying to lie to you. Why am I the one in the right in this situation? Well, Megan, as well as other propaganda theorists, and I am in the right, Megan, as well as other propaganda theorists. By the way, this is a true story, by the way. He's not lying about so, this. So if you're listening to this, you know what happened. And you know who you are, by the way. Who <laughs> Megan, as well as other propaganda theorists, think that when we talk about propaganda, we are not focused on the intention of the speaker to deceive or convince, but on the specific effects this speech has on an audience. Megan's challenge to widespread accounts that claim that propaganda has certain specific effects via either irrationality or individual beliefs is that if we want to demarcate how propaganda differs from other sorts of political speech, then we should desire criteria that establishes the mechanism of propaganda as constitutively political rather than merely occasionally or incidentally political. She thinks neither the irrationalism thesis nor the individual beliefs thesis fits the bill. When I lie to my friend about their absolutely trash tofu and rice, we can describe this interaction without any reference whatsoever to any political community or project, even though my speech may have had the effect of convincing my friend they did a good job. In one article... Megan offers counterexamples to irrationalism, such as the hard propaganda, uh, that's a technical term, hard propaganda, of autocratic regimes that make preposterous claims about the omnipresence and omniscience of the leader. The point of this type of propaganda is not to tell the audience to believe that this omniscience is in fact true, but to show the audience that the regime has the power to command the entire media apparatus and thus intimidate dissidents into silence. One of the key takeaways here is the effectivity of the propaganda does not depend on the irrationality of the audience, but quite the opposite, their rational evaluation of what is prudent or possible. Note that the irrationalism thesis would be committed to the idea that the audience acts submissively because they somehow come to actually believe in the invincible power of the leader. But Megan argues that we can get to the same effect without hypothesizing that a rationalism is sufficient for demarcating what makes propaganda distinctly political. In the second article, Megan interrogates whether even positive propaganda should be understood as a type of speech that challenges or changes individually held beliefs of the audience. Megan turns to the work of Hannah Arendt in order to evaluate propaganda as a group-forming speech. It attempts to make possible or impossible certain forms of group agency. We can track the effects of propaganda not by looking at or polling what individuals come to believe. After all, there are many types of speech that can affect the beliefs individuals hold, but by what groups do or do not do. 
managers that distribute pamphlets on the dangers of unionizing or people who go on and on about, quote, black on black crime may not be lying about certain statistics, but their aim is not to change individual beliefs. It is to make certain constituencies possible and other constituencies impossible. Megan thinks our focus should be on group agency rather than individual belief if we want an account of propaganda that is not so wide as to become theoretically useless. Before wrapping up, I want to emphasize that Megan's project is essentially about what is the most useful way to theorize propaganda if we are interested in political theory. This means not only deciding on what we take the effects of propaganda to be, but the mechanisms by which those effects are achieved. That's where the debate is, and not whether propaganda is good or bad. It is a project that's concerned in the first place with getting clear on what we even should mean by saying something's propaganda, and then there may be downstream political analyses or consequences. So personally, Megan is a dear friend of mine from my time in Chicago, so I might be biased, but it's not propaganda. These are fantastic articles that I think <laughs> really show what philosophy in the analytic vein can do. And that means a lot coming for me because I make a lot of jokes about analytic philosophy on here. So I recourage you all to read them. With that, I want to turn it over to Megan and begin by asking, could you say a bit more about the history of propaganda as a term and, you know, and how that links up with um, your interest in analyses of what propaganda does? Yeah, thanks, Will. And that's, that's high praise for me in the analytic tradition. We appreciate that. Um, Some of my best friends are analytic philosophers, as they say. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I appreciate that about you. Um, yeah, so I mean, the term propaganda obviously isn't anything new. Uh, it comes to us from as far back as the 17th century, where in its original usage, uh, we find it in the context of the Congre Congregatio de Propaganda Fidi, which was like a congregation of Roman Catholic cardinals who were concerned with foreign missions. And there, obviously, it just means something like propagation of the faith. It definitely doesn't have any negative connotations. The cardinals doing this propagation of the faith have no problem uh, with, with the ideas that they're propagating. And then in the centuries after that, you see it coming into secular usage, where it just means propagation of sort of any set of ideas or politics. And it's not until relatively late, uh, as late potentially as around the First World War, that it starts getting primarily negative usage, at least in certain contexts. So I think um, in like broadly liberal discourse, although as, as you pointed out in the introduction, you do see this tendency kind of all over the political spectrum. Propaganda as a term now is, is primarily a term of, of critique. Interestingly, around the First World War, you see this this sort of flux in the usage of the term, where some people are still trying to use it as a neutral term, others are trying to use it um, explicitly as a critical one. The famous uh, propagandist, public relations expert, kind of like nefarious uh, purveyor of US foreign policy goals, Edward Bernays, around this time, got in some hot water for overusing the word propaganda. Uh, he showed up at the, the Paris Peace Conference with some other people from the American like World War I propaganda establishment and said like, we Americans are here to propagandize basically and gotten some real problems just for that. Bro, and what he, keep it yeah. secret. <laughs> yeah, and so, yeah, Say yeah. Less. And what he says shortly thereafter is that he realized, look, propaganda is still really useful. If you can use it during wartime, you can use it during peacetime. But that, as he put it, like, because of the way the Germans were using the word, quote unquote, you couldn't use the term anymore. And so you better find a new one. And that new one was, of course, public relations. And so, like, you see some real shift in the way that propagandists think of their own craft as a result of, like, the increasingly negative connotations of the term. So as you mentioned in the intro, Will, you see this huge 
uptick in the use of the term propaganda and the mobilization of that as a concept of critique around like 2015, 2016. And that's around the time that I started getting interested in it too. I think just any time we see some concept being mobilized as critique, the natural question is, what actually are we criticizing through the use of that concept? And I became increasingly suspicious around that time that that mobilization of the concept of propaganda together with this uh, analysis on which what propaganda was critiquing was irrationality was sort of symptomatic of this broader kind of liberal trend to try to cash out all the problems in politics as involving irrationality, when in fact there are probably bad things that are politics that have nothing to do with irrationality. I'm just, my, so my first question, I, I really like that you put it that way about the, the kind of liberal neutrality that propaganda um, the propaganda critique implicitly refers to, like what's actually going on, um, it seems to me, is that liberals think that they're the only civilized and rational people. And when they start to see the pores <laughs> gravitating toward ideas that they find uncivilized, barbaric, or what the orcs are saying over there, um, or the degenerates or the, the deplorables or whatever, when they start agitating, they're like, well, what are they responding to? It must be propaganda otherwise known as misinformation or whatever. I, but I do wonder, like, I'm just, I, I, this isn't criticizing your increase in interest in this in 2015, 2016, but that actually seems to me like to be a, a way that liberalism talks about this as such. Because it seems to me that like at the end of ideologies becomes anything that diverges from liberal reasonableness must be either ideology or propaganda. And so there is this kind of odd, you know, like from the ni- from 1990 onward, there is this odd s- synchronicity between propaganda is what's going on the on the one side. So th- it's kind of like being de- like mentally degenerate. So if you have an ideology still and you're not one of the ones in the middle, it must mean that you are stupid, delusional or living in the past. You know, like and those are all ways of t- saying it's, it's irrational to hold on to anything that isn't, um, does that kind of, like, does that, like, I feel like propaganda and ideology in a way are two ways of making sense of, like, inappropriate deviations. I don't know if that's friendly to what you're saying, but that was something I was thinking about when you were talking and reading. Yeah, I, I think that that is a, a friendly to what I'm saying. I think some critics who I would still regard as sort of broadly liberal critics position their characterization of propaganda as a kind of like liberal ideology critique, mm. in fact. Um, hmm. yeah. And I I don't know how that fits with your thought that, which I took to be that the term propaganda itself functions ideologically. Right, it's as though there's like a presumption in favor of a certain way of thinking, which is like, yeah, status quo liberal reasonableness, that any deviation from is therefore like evidence of like an, an irrationalizing effect, right? Mm-hmm. So like, I don't want to necessarily like make you name names, but like there was clearly something in a lot of these accounts (laughs) of like propaganda that uh, you grouped together as being a rationalist that you like found unsatisfying. So could you say a little bit about that? Like even, especially even in the context, right? Like you said of 2016, uh, you're seeing this like concept be deployed. And like, so what was it about conceiving of propaganda as irrationally blocking off certain ways of thinking or 
uh, blocking people's capacity to reason that you just like found like didn't actually work or didn't make sense of uh, certain phenomena? Yeah. So what I might say first is less of an argument and more of just a reporting of like, I think how I uh, felt about a lot of the commentary that I was hearing around 2015, 2016. There's this attempt, I mean, certainly by analytic philosophers, there's this attempt, but I think broadly by sort of like liberal media and liberal commentators to kind of highly, highly epistemicize certain behaviors, particularly of the, um, I don't know, the hoi polloi, the deplorables, the, the, the populations that Lillian was talking about a moment ago. The salts of the... Yeah, yeah, yeah. To talk as though the phenomenon of Trumpism, the phenomenon of like QAnon, conspiracy theories, people falling for what liberals regard as bad politics, is in the first place downstream of poor or muddied thinking. And look, of course I see things in like right-wing politics that I think are like, frankly, not very rational, but it's always <laughs> just seemed to me as though, um, it's always seemed to me as though these kind of like things that are susceptible to epistemic characterization, to characterization in terms of like good or bad methods of reasoning are kind of epiphenomenal, um, are kind of not mm -hmm. the foundational explanations of the social or political phenomenon. And so that was my fundamental concern at that time, I think. It's not that I deny that people ever act irrationally. It's not even that I deny that irrationality would be a bad thing. It's not necessarily that kind of critique of liberalism that I'm offering. But I just think that there are things that are troubling in our politics that don't have to do with the irrationality. And that was sort of my instinct from the beginning. Yeah, and you identify another issue, which I really liked with the irrationality approach, which is that, and even just the epistemic approach in general, is that it is highly individualist in character, right? It has to do with like, it perceives a social landscape, which are just like individual mentalities that are being influenced by this stuff. But on the other side, there's an individualist solution to it, which is that like big brained fancy elites like in Ivy League schools are going to have to like are going to have to analytically break down all of this idiocy for all of the dummies out there. And that's why their salaries are so high and all that. Right. Because they, somebody has to do this. Um, somebody has to do this work. So. Yeah, I, I just found that very I compelling. I believe in Harvard. <laughs> Doing God's, God's work oh, yeah. at Yale, this. as I say. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I like how Will just tried to make it about Harvard as an explicit deflection. <laughs> we're, yeah, not talking, I mean, we're not talking about Yale, okay? <laughs> I just know there are other Ivies out there. That's all. Yeah, I mean, I think that, yeah, this, this, this point about how the like epistemic narrative of right-wing politics is sort of self-serving for a certain set of people. There's this there's this great response to so Jason Stanley had this 2015 book um, speaking of Yale, <laughs> how propaganda Weird. works, um, and Amy Srinivasan in one of her commentaries on it that everybody should read uh, sort of points out that there is something self-protective for analytic philosophers and for like you know many of us who are comfortable uh, in thinking that it's going to be some kind of intellectual critique of bad ideology that uh, solves politics. But even before we get how the way that one theorizes propaganda also tends to shape or predetermine what one thinks the solution will be. What I thought was partially going on in the first article is you even want to say that the mechanism of how something like propaganda might be effective might not be purchased through irrationality. And I was wondering if you could say a bit using like maybe an example of what you call um, hard propaganda of how we could actually distill a different mechanism that allows us to still talk about propaganda without necessarily 
necessarily saying it has to do with keying into irrational aspects of an individual psyche. Because I thought the mechanism part of how propaganda works, is that that's a part of your critique as well, not only our response to what the solution should be. Yeah. So, I mean, if I'm understanding the, the question properly, I, I definitely don't necessarily think that the term propaganda has to be sort of thrown out, that it's like too connected with a spurious kind of critique to ever be valuable. You're asking about the sort of mechanism by which, on my account, propaganda actually works. And I think truly the, the idea on my account is that propaganda works at the individual level by many different mechanisms. Uh, so, mm -hmm. you know, sometimes it does get individuals to form new beliefs or new desires, or it gets them to take action. At the individual level, there's not going to be any one effect on the individual cognitive system that's like distinctive of propaganda. And part of my account is actually the only thing that's distinctive of propaganda, it's what's gonna be discernible at like the group or collective level. Is this like welding people into a collectivity that can do things Which together? Or perhaps, yeah, maybe the deliberate atomization of people so they can't do things together. Yeah, like this seems so crazy. Guess I can't do anything about it. I mean, I, I do, I, I really like that about your account. I mean, that like action or inaction, because part of it is that like, you create this like spectacle of power in a way so that people are like, like the Chinese TV thing where it's like, well, guess I better not do anything about that, you know? And like, how many times in my life have the war, war drums just like started to beat, you know, in the US? And I'm like, well, I, I'm pretty sure none of us want to go to war, if I'm being honest. You can't really put boots on the ground in great number anyway. We don't have a draft, so that tells you that Vietnam put it and put an end to like our desire to like go murder people and mass as an entire population, you know. And so they do it in other ways, but in a way like the propaganda means that you just shut the fuck up, you know. That's what I that's what I learned after protesting the Iraq, Iraq War that I have zero control over my government. They're gonna do it anyway for the next twenty years, and I'm just gonna be like talked at like this is a just you know and free thing. And uh, Obama is like, we're going to put an end to the war. And then he didn't, you know, and, and then I was just like, oh, OK, well. Yeah, the, the account of like hard propaganda does, I think, help to shut up a lot of kind of push back against a lot of smugness in the West, because, you know, there's a certain like narrative that I feel like especially dominates in like liberal media and in a lot of people's minds beyond that, that. You know, how could people be like, you know, they, the example this is often given is like North Korea. Like, how could people wake up and hear, oh, like the dear leader, like slayed 100 dragons this morning and drank a huge glass of like, you know, tiger tears or something. And it's like how they're and they're thinking like, how how could anybody <laughs> how could anybody possibly? I don't know. Just, I don't know. <laughs> no, Korea, which means that your brain is no, really cool. Let, let him cook. Let him cook. Let him cook. You know, and they see that. Stuff, like, man, how could people be so dumb like over over there and these other places as to believe like this idiotic or the election was won by 99.9% and, you know, people will have this kind of smugness where they say, like, man, must suck to live in, like, a place where you're so, your brain is so closed off and you're so heavily propagandized that you don't understand that none of that is, like, real. And the point that you make in the in your paper is that, like, yeah, everybody there understands 100% that it's real, including the people that are making that propaganda. And its effects are meant to be different, right? The, the effects are not to instill irrationality. And in fact, you argue, and this is what I want to ask you about, like, in fact, you argue that people draw very rational conclusions from this. Like, and so could you say a little bit more about like what that, what are the rational conclusions that people come to in your view when they experience that kind of hard propaganda? And which one last thing, it's not exclusive to 
other places around the world because you very rightly show that that kind of stupid sounding hard propaganda is found in workplaces all over the West and all over the capitalist world, right? Like stupid managerial propaganda, not just union busting, but all the silly things that they make you watch about team building and all this crazy stuff that nobody there actually believes, including the people making it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it is part of my view that, look, when you see an, an impressive demonstration of strength from the state or from your employer or maybe from a corporation or whatever, it is not irrational to respond in the way that Lillian was just describing, to feel like I can't do anything and I'm not going to try. Mm -hmm. No, obviously, one hopes that that's not where our politics terminates, right? Like, that that's just the end of it. I'm not saying that because it's rational, we ought to end there. But like, whatever criticism we want to give of people's feeling of powerlessness and apathy, it's not that they're being irrational. They've been given really good reason to conclude that they're, certainly their individual actions won't do much, and even large-scale mobilizations often don't have the effects that we, were, that we were promised. So part of what I try to sketch in one of the articles is like, if people have been rational in reaching this conclusion that they can't do anything, what could possibly move them forward from there. And it's a different kind of positive propaganda, I think, that demonstrates that it is possible, mm. after all, to do something. But the kind of like inspiration or prefiguration that's necessary in order to, to try to offer one another that kind of demonstration, when so often a demonstration to the contrary is what's been offered us, it's hard to explain the kind of like rational process that gets us there. Yeah, I think that uh, that that allows us to sort of very naturally bridge from the one kind of propaganda you discussed to the other, right? So from hard propaganda, the sort of state or you know authoritarian demonstration of power that is desubjectivating or group dissolving, disaffecting, uh, to the other kind you talk about, which is propaganda of the deed, which is very interesting. It has a totally different sort of genealogy and history. Uh, and it, it, it also forms a counter a counter argument to the irrationalism thesis in a different way, because like, you know, you quote people like uh, Enrico Malatesta, right, early Italian anarchist, who's very explicit about saying things like, you know, we're going to do this sort of propaganda, but without deceiving or corrupting the masses. It's not an attempt to get them to believe something irrational. And it's, I think, interesting, right? So this is I want to hear you talk more about this, but this, I think, is closer to the positive kind of propaganda that you were just talking about, where, like, the action performed, and, you know, we don't endorse any action on this podcast, <laughs> but, like, you know, assassinations or, um, Sab you know, sabotage. <laughs> or sabotage, right? Uh, don't blow up part, any pipelines. Course, <laughs> don't do yeah, it. Yeah, definitely don't blow up pipelines, anyone. But on the one hand, like, you know, part of the aim of the action is the content of that action, but maybe more profoundly part of the, 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 the propagandistic aim is just to demonstrate that such a thing is possible, which kind of can't be a lie. That sort of can't be a deception, right? Like if they, if they pull it off, it's true. And so this, this maybe is close to the sort of positive propaganda that you're yeah. talking about. So can you talk a little bit more about that and how maybe there is a, a rationality to that as well? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, well, one of the big questions, right, is when there's so much evidence to the contrary, just like what gets people to go out there and try to demonstrate to one another that it was possible after all to, uh, mm -hmm. you know, to, to burn down the tax records or, or blow up the factory or whatever these like 19th century anarchists who are interested in propaganda by the deed were up to. But it's exactly what you say, Gil, that once that act is performed in any case, they've offered, you know, like 
uh, perfectly good evidence that the working class is powerful, that the elite are fallible, right? It's, it doesn't require people to be irrational for them to reach that conclusion. It requires them to update their, their beliefs on the basis of evidence, which is just the paradigmatic rational activity. What I think this kind of propaganda by the deed has in common with the other sorts of examples that I think function as counterexamples to irrationalism, the, the hard propaganda stuff that we talked about earlier, which, which as Owen noted, uh, is often talked about in kind of explicitly autocratic regimes, but definitely happens in putative liberal democracies as well, particularly in the workplace. What propaganda by the deed has in common with that kind of propaganda is that it kind of involves showing people things rather than merely telling them things. Um, I mean, the showing-telling distinction gets some technical connotations in analytic philosophy, but the gist of it is just, if I'm telling you something, I want you to believe it just on the basis of seeing that I want you to believe it, right? You're kind of taking my word for it. Whereas if I'm showing you something, I'm saying, don't take my word for it. I am offering you some evidence that is independent of me and my communicative intentions, and I'm hoping that you're going to update your, your, your beliefs on the basis of that. What hard propaganda does, even though it looks sometimes like merely offering testimony to some effect, is actually an ask act of, for instance, showing your audience how powerful mm -hmm. you are. And likewise, propaganda by the deed is an act of showing your audience that, after all, a certain kind of victory is possible. I just want to say, and this made me laugh. I literally wrote in the, the margins, hmm, hmm. This is like such a classic analytic philosopher way of saying something about the sort of um, liberal countries. Quote, I leave it to the reader to decide whether propaganda purporting to demonstrate the futility and risk of, say, radical left social movements might not also be a salient presence in the legal and political lives of liberal democratic polities, too. You leave it to the reader? You, you <laughs> don't do. have um, <laughs> any sort of conclusions you have? Okay. You All decide right. whether this kind of propaganda exists in the West. Yeah. It was up to you. Yeah. <laughs> Just, you know, you know, whatever you might think. So something I thought was really, you know, cool in your account is, you know, Owen was talking about the, the slaying dragons and drinking tiger tears. And in one of the sections about hard propaganda, though, you say, well, if it is true that the regime has this type of power, at least wants to be seen as having this type of power, why don't they say simply things like squares are circles? Yeah. Giraffes fly and all of that. Because it seems like that might demonstrate the power, but it seems like you want to say, but the propaganda is trying to do something else. It's not merely or not only trying to flex. It's also trying to provide a type of script of the conduct one ought to have. And I was wondering if you could you know, say a bit more. I guess what, what I found fascinating here is that this type of propaganda, even with saying wildly outrageous things, the background premise uh, that uh, uh, of it working is that people will actually update their beliefs rationally, that they will evaluate the evidence correctly. And so I was wondering if you could say a bit about, you know, one, why the, the showing isn't like simply saying things like it turns out the sky is purple. But, you know, the, that even when saying outrageous things, the outrageous things are meant to hook into here's a script you're supposed to follow. And so I was wondering if you could say a bit more about that. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, you would think, of course that if I, all I want to do is show you that I can get away with saying outrageous things, I could say any outrageous things. There'd be no reason for them to be even sort of political in character. And the argument that I make in the paper is that, well, there might be sort of two reasons to, to still make the outrageous things that you say as a, as a state or as an employer political in character. One is maybe you're like, hold note that there might be a couple people who actually believe what you say, right? Um, and so if you can con convince some people of some sort of like outrageous leadership cult doctrine along the way, like so far so good. But another thing is that 
very often these kinds of hard propagandistic messages aren't designed just to be said by the head of the propaganda ministry or by your manager. They're hoping that you'll parrot them back too. And sometimes there's actually like a fair amount of pressure to do that, right? And then we should consider what effect that has when people not only have to listen to total bullshit, but have to absorb it as a script and say it back. And the idea is that is sort of uniquely politically enervating, right? To be forced to say just total bullshit, to say things that you don't believe to be true, to say things that uh, the saying of which would be contrary to your best interests and you see that except for the kind of ambient threat of force that's imposed on you by the, the propagandist, whomever they might be, right? What happens in that situation is that a person, though, gets a certain further kind of evidence, namely the kind of evidence that they can be forced to do this sort of thing, that they can be forced to compromise in a certain way. And that, again, doesn't ask of them that they update their beliefs or desires or intentions in any irrational way. It, on the contrary, it asks them to take a rational look at what they've been made to do um, and conclude that politics is sort of dead for them as an agent, that, they, that their action can't reflect their, their convictions. A type of self-confidence seems to become impossible in that situation. It's you know, it's not just you know I'm overwhelmed by force. Is realizing I have these commitments that I thought were so solid, and then having to watch yourself, not follow through in those commitments, and not because you've changed your mind, but it also just turns out your commitments aren't enough. And you could see how disabling that could be for political practice. I imagine. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And it's the it's the sort of negative flip side of what you know, labor organizers and others will often point to is the fact that it's by doing things with other people that even, you know, individuals who might have felt kind of politically disempowered come to feel that after all, they have the capacity to engage in political action by forcing people to watch themselves engage in action that doesn't express their political convictions. You can do just the opposite. Yeah. Could I ask a little bit about the versions of this that happen um, in societies such as ours? I was thinking a little bit about the way that the New York Times reported on Donald Trump back in 2015, 2016, because they're doing the same thing today with RFK Jr., uh, which is like just pointing out that he's saying crazy bullshit and being like, can you believe that this guy's saying crazy bullshit and that people believe it? And that is like completely ineffectual and ridiculous. I'm wondering like, okay, within this sort of space of your account, in a world where people are so sort of atomized and alienated and isolated, there's also a kind of group formation, but maybe like a serialized one to use like Sartre's term, where like people in, in parroting back the script, as you were just talking about, even when it's crazy, when it's bananas, on the one hand, that is like disempowering and alienating because you like are no longer making use of your capacity for reason. But on the other hand, there's also like a reasonable way in which like that feels like being part of a group, mm -hmm. right? Uh, e even like a kind of like lunatic one yeah. uh, that might have a sort of kind of purchase as well that feels good to be part of something, even if it's crazy. Yeah. yeah I don't know. Could you, could you like sort of pick up on like, or how would you think about the sort of play of like reason and unreason going on in like, yeah. Yeah, stuff totally. That, w that we see today here. Yeah. So I think my general perspective on like certainly like right-wing politics of the type you might be describing and stuff too is that it's this kind of like deep desire for like group participation in part that drives it right and so a kind of critique or uh, attempt to 
undermine this kind of politics that just points to falsehoods, like just isn't getting at the issue. This is sort of what I meant earlier when I think the epistemic stuff is kind of epiphenomenal. Like mm. people might end up acting irrationally, but it's, but it's not because of some like, they're sort of have a, have a deep uh, tendency to be more irrational than anybody else. It's because of these like various like social and economic incentives that are, that are coming to bear on them. And so what actually, I mean, this is like not a novel positive solution coming from the left, but like the actual solution to right-wing organizing is just left-wing organizing, right? It's like trying to interpolate <laughs> people into a different kind of collective um, if that's what mm -hmm. they want. And liberals can't do that because they see any part the participation in groups as such, almost as a kind of mob irrationality. Yeah. Or what Lillian was like, what Lillian was saying earlier, some connection to ideology or all of that's inherently, you know, so they can't, so you can't fight it. I mean, that's why, that's what makes yeah. liberalism so impotent against fascistic movements. I mean, I'm going to play devil's advocate a little bit because, so I actually, I mean, I agree with you, Megan. I also agree with Owen. Um, but I guess like the reason I kind of started in the beginning with talking about ideology, like propaganda as a reaction to like the end of ideologies and thinking about pro propaganda in this ex explicitly negative sense is that when the left says that the solution to right-wing politics is left-wing politics, I actually think this is just, this isn't just that liberals can't do it. I mean, I actually think it, it's their worst nightmare because for them, the right and the left going at it is what produced totalitarianism. So the use of propaganda for them can't mm. have this positive function yeah. because, and, and, and the, the devil's advocate part of that was that they're not totally wrong. Like the, the reason, <laughs> I mean, I think that I would be much more worried about something like fascism if the left were strong, but mm -hmm. because it's not. I'm of the, I don't think fascism is a serious political problem right now, Camp. Um, mm. if I, I think there would be something to worry about if the left were more bigger and more serious than it is. As it is, I think bourgeois democracy basically works for everyone in the US, to the organs of power anyway. I don't think there's a serious interest in, over, in, in overturning it. But if the left were stronger, you would start to see that coalesce much more strongly. And that's that's a liberal's worst nightmare, you know? And I, and I almost think that like, you know, for my part, I think I kind of almost want to bite the bullet and just say, you know, so be it. But that's their, that's what they're saying. The comment, you couldn't, you couldn't beat them last time. You won't beat them this time. The only place is the center. That's the only thing that's rational. Mm -hmm. So the question that gets raised for me between Owen's comments and, and yours, Lillian, is like, because if you have this general standpoint that like people want to belong to some groups, some collective action, and they're going to like, they're going to find they're going to find some way to do that, right? Wherever wherever in the political spectrum, the stability of liberal politics would then have to depend on inviting people into some such collective. And so the question is like, what are the solutions that liberal politics has mm. for this desire of people to be like to be taken up into some kind of collective action? Um, what are the kind of like simul? I mean, I'm inclined to think like simulacra of progress and things like that that like. I'm thinking of this like is a safe space. yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is a safe space. you can just say it. <laughs> yeah, that I'm thinking like big D democratic politics presents people with to like to give them the sense that they're engaged in um, a project. Mm -hmm. I mean, I mean, one one of the you know the oldest critiques from the sort of Marxist oriented left is you know, nationalism is exactly the type of propagandistic speech that attempts to form a group in so far as you think oh actually we all have this horizontal relationship of we're all American we're all all French and that obvious whatever distinctions you know you might be rich I might be poor you might be the cop who shoots me I might be the one who gets shot but at least at the end of the day <laughs> that's what
what unites us. <laughs> and what I, I find fascinating here is that on your account, especially um, the article in Group Agency, we can see how propaganda works at both mobilizing a type of group, but also demobilizing, you know, um, agency. Mm-hmm. And so, mm-hmm. you know, kind of like what, you know, Gil was saying, type of seriality where there is a group, but it's a group that doesn't seem to have the capacity to do much. And so, I, you know, I was wondering if you could, you know, say a bit more on the idea of analyzing propaganda in terms of its effects on group agency, rather than, you know, analyzing it in terms of, you know, what I called in my opening, poll testing what individuals may happen to believe. I thought that that was like a really interesting distinction where you're not disavowing individual belief, but you thought that the important thing is we need to, you know, focus on effects on group agency. And why do you think that is? Let me also play devil's advocate. Well, doesn't propaganda simply work by if it doesn't change people's beliefs on, you know, say the the king drinks dragon tears, but it certainly does change their beliefs on what group that they are a part of or take themselves to be a part of, changes their beliefs on what is possible in the world. And so couldn't someone respond to you and say, but at the end of the day, aren't you still an individualist here? Aren't we still looking at what people's beliefs are about the world in order to understand their actions? And that's the locus of action for propaganda? Yeah, so I think it's really easy to to take a quick look at the position that I lay out in these articles and think like, are you denying that that like group agency involved or like that coming to have group agency involves a change in beliefs? Like how could you possibly deny such a thing? And and the answer is I'm not. Like so I don't deny that propaganda one of the ways it works is by changing people's beliefs. I don't think anybody would want to say propaganda is just whatever changes people's people's beliefs because like every moment of every day our beliefs are being changed by the stimuli around us, right? I changed my mind <laughs> twice in a second. It's incredible. I'm so uh, incredible. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> not me. I'm immune to propaganda. That's fantastic. Well, not all of us can be like can be like Gil. So um, I. Uh, <laughs> so the rest of us, you know, so the rest we gotta us, do yeah. politics. <laughs> we gotta do politics. Yeah, and so I think. When the propagandist theorist, propaganda theorist is challenged to say, well, what's actually distinctive of propaganda? It's not just that it changes beliefs. They're going to say, like, well, what kind of beliefs does it bring about? And there, they'll, they'll say something like, oh, they're the false beliefs or the, the irrational beliefs or the otherwise bad beliefs. I actually just think that there's, like, no kind of belief that you can point to that all the plausible instances of propaganda bring about. And so to find something that propaganda characteristically does, as I said earlier, you've got to zoom out and not look at the level of individual beliefs or other individual cognitive states. The only distinctive thing you'll find is a certain kind of effect on the group. Um, Another way of putting this is that, like, a worry that I have is that being extremely focused on individual level, like, epistemic states, it can be really hard to see what would make propaganda kind of distinctively political if all it was doing is bringing about you know, even like bad in some way individual beliefs. So like this point that, that that Will made earlier, right, is like lying to your friend about how delicious their dinner was. Like that brings about a false belief, I, I guess, right? But it just doesn't really like seem super political unless there's some context for this <laughs> dinner party that I'm missing. The, um, the start of the revolution is often very obscure, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so I sort of think, yeah, I'm happy in some ways to allude to beliefs by saying like, Propaganda brings about a certain kind of beliefs, and what kind are those? The kind that are relevant to 
people being able or not to do things together. Yeah. And so there's not going to be yeah. any way of, of characterizing what propaganda does that doesn't make mention to this kind of like group level capacity thing. That's fundamental. Yeah, I mean, like, how would you even notice? And you say something along these lines at some point, but if it were only about individuals' kind of private beliefs, I mean, you wouldn't notice the effects of propaganda. I mean, the effects of propaganda yeah. come into play <laughs> when those ideas or those beliefs end up like bind, like becoming bound in a in a group formation and are able to yeah. then through collective action the collective agency yield some kinds of effects i mean yeah like this i was i probably bring this up way too often but think of hobbes right and hobbes was like very clear that <laughs> you're allowed to think whatever you want like privately basically you can individually think whatever the hell you want but you cannot like organize a corporation or a group or an association around any particular kind of idea the second that that kind of group formation becomes, it gives those ideas or those beliefs force, then you have a problem politically. But before that, I mean, you know, we can, we have all kinds of, we live in a time where everybody think like people in power and our structures of power are quite happy to let us just think all kinds of crazy radical things individually. So many people believe communism mm -hmm. now, like lots of people are call themselves communists and lots of people call themselves socialists. And for some reason it is entirely unthreatening to like, anybody with any stake in any power center, right? Um, yeah. And so that's why I, I, the point is just to me super well taken that it, th these things matter when they become not, maybe not the motor force, but when they become an ingredient in a group formation, whether it be union unionization or political militancy or whatever it might be, like that's when they become threatening. And so I don't know, there, that, that moment I was just like, yeah, I buy this. This is like this conception of propaganda, like that part of it like, has to be right. Cool. Um, <laughs> Sorry. You got the thumbs up from the Hobbesian in the group. I appreciate so. that a lot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I, I was just thinking how part of what you were saying that Owen there is something that I think even some people who I would still describe as holding on to the irrationalism thesis agree with. So like this this like French uh, uh, sociologist, Jacques Ellul, who I talk about in the, the papers, who has this book, Propaganda. I mean, he himself says, look, why would the powers that be sort of care about everybody having a certain idea? Like just why would that matter to anybody who wanted to accumulate yeah. power? What, what he goes on to say is it's not that propaganda gets people to form irrational beliefs. It gets them to hold irrationally to a certain plan of action or something to that mm. effect. And, and I, I agree with him even there, because I don't think, obviously, I don't think that irrationality has to be a part of it, but I moreover think that it's like collective action um, yeah. or the lack thereof that's really salient. Yeah. It might be helpful to, to, to like specify for the audience and folks who haven't read it, like you don't deny that sometimes propaganda works in these ways of like, you know, instilling irrational beliefs or encouraging irrational forms of thought. It's just that you think that propaganda doesn't always do that, yeah. right? Which is counter the irrationalism thesis. Sometimes it invokes rationality in ways that are meaningful for con like producing certain kinds of action or ac group activity. It's that this like group agency thing, right? Group formation or group dissolution can sometimes involve re reasons and sometimes can involve unreason, yeah. right? Yeah. In that vain. I was like looking at some of the other ways that your research is moving right now. And in some places you've mentioned that you're like thinking about propaganda in some of the ways that we've been discussing, but also polarization, which you mentioned in one of your answers earlier, and also partisanship. 
Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about how you see these three sort of concepts fitting together as you like um, understand them? Yeah. Today? So, I mean, these the, the concepts of propaganda, polarization, partisanship, for some reason, all starting with P's and kind of fit together as, as a part of uh, like a liberal critique of discourse, I think. Right. Um, an interesting thing is that I think once upon a time, perhaps there was a supposition that polarization, too, was the inevitable consequence of people being irrational of like engaging in like one of many kinds of cognitive biases or something like that. But there's actually like, a lot of work now in, I mean, even economics and certainly in like sort of formal epistemology stuff and philosophy showing that like you can get belief polarization effects from agents who are presumed to be totally rational, to be good like Bayesian updaters. Um, <laughs> so they're functioning with some particular notion of what rationality is, right? But the reason that I think it makes sense to talk about polarization next to discussing propaganda is because there, as here, you see this impulse to make sense of all the, the supposed bad-making features of politics in terms of irrationality when it's probably just not true. What, and I, I, I don't want to put you in the spot, so I, I'm debating whether I should pretend that this is my position rather than imputing it to you, but let's pretend that I believe this. You know, so on, on one account, this notion of polarization, you know, um, in our contemporary political discourse, you know, especially describing the United States, oh, we're so polarized and all of that. But then you look at act the actual like, kind of political beliefs people hold, and there isn't actually a wide divergence. But, you know, I'm wondering if what you would say there's some, or let me put it this way. You could say that there actually is no polarization, or I'm wondering if on your account, especially with group forming speech, the issue is that our individual private political beliefs might be aligned, but the groups that we're forming ourselves into take ourselves not to be aligned, you know, kind of affect the polarization. So I'm wondering yeah. if one way of looking at uh, the case of propaganda is that actually it seems as if it can have effects, even if like a broad segment of the populace holds similar political beliefs and yet not take themselves to be part of an effective we that can, you know, mobilize those beliefs. So I, I was wondering, is, is that my kooky position or does that make sense to you? <laughs> yeah, no, it does make sense to me. I think uh, a constant trouble in discussions of political polarization is this sort of slipping back and forth between meaning different things by the term, right? And so one kind of polarization that you just pointed to, well, is affective polarization, where what polarization means is like people hate each other's guts. Um, and then there's this other thing that we often talk about, which is like, gets lots of different names in like the political science literature on this, but we might it's just belief polarization, right? Like how far apart are people on the political spectrum? Um, if you could quantify people's uh, sort of political ideology and then like graph that, do you see a bimodal distribution where like the peaks are getting further apart from one another, which would represent that people's ideas are really getting much more different over time? And it really seems like you don't see that in like the quantitative empirical mm. literature, whereas you do definitely see uh, increased affective polarization from like the 70s mm. till now. And so this, uh, this idea that you had, Will, about how it seems as though group formation is in some ways floating free of, I want to be careful about using the word ideology, but at least where that means, like it's floating free of like policy preference or something like that. That definitely seems to be right. Mm. Um, and so it's at least, I mean, I don't know if that, that functions as another kind of criticism of this idea that people's behavior is being is being uh, driven by like irrational conclusions about what kind of policy would be best. I suppose the irrationalist could still suggest that like they're being irrational as far as how they decide what kinds of like groups to engage with or something. And it's just worth noting that while like kind of 
the ideological or belief polarization of like the average American hasn't gotten further apart, there is this this finding that like the the beliefs or ideologies of the elite have gotten further apart. And that's part of the story, no doubt. The elite as in like elected officials in some respects have gotten further apart. And so, so that's part of the story. I don't really know how to make yeah. sense of all this data, but yeah. Yeah, I was just thinking about polarization here to belief polarization, I guess. Yeah, I, I think that this sort of constellation of concepts that you're working on here is helpful for sort of picking apart what's so I what I find so frustrating about centrist liberal discourse in its like supposedly like critical posture vis-a-vis mm-hmm. -vis, like politics, but which is so like not in so many ways. And I was just thinking about like, you know, the sort of thing that you hear about like how polarized things have become, the sort of like pearl clutching that like, again, a good liberal centrist would say about like, you know, with all the trans stuff, like, you know, you've got these really polarized positions. On the one hand, you have people who say that we should kill all the trans people. And on the other hand, there are people who say that they shouldn't say that and that we shouldn't kill trans people. And it's like, this is actually not, yeah. <laughs> this is actually not the sort of like both sides are equally radical. Yeah. Um, and and that one would fall into one of these camps rather than another, as opposed to the reasonable position of letting everyone say whatever, or I guess, would have to be an effective propaganda on this sort of centrist model. Mm -hmm. um, it's, an odd, it's an odd moment where things feel both extraordinarily polarized and that like it's unreasonable to have a political position, seems to be kind of the ambient yeah. ideology in the U.S. today. Yeah, exactly. I mean, so this is underlying the whole discourse about polarization, I think, is just this, is that, like, if even supposing we're on the same page about what particularly polarization is and even perhaps why it's troubling to the degree that you think it is, um, is polarization itself, like, a kind of natural target of political intervention? Like, I think, and that's, I think, implicit in a lot of kind of like centrist liberal discussions of it is that polarization, the way it, it could and should go away is if everybody would just like move to the median position, um, which as <laughs> you point out, Gil, is like, <laughs> yeah, is like a particularly horrifying prospect when you consider that a lot of polarization has been driven asymmetrically in cases where like, it seems like the right has moved for the right that would just force the left to acquiesce to like a, basically a right wing position as well. I guess, like, you know, uh, the last question I'd like to ask you, especially with this notion of, of group formation, and you can plead agnostic on this, but do you think that propaganda is a necessary element to politics? If you are coming from a left perspective, should we start thinking that propaganda is, if it might not be the whole thing, but an essential ingredient for forming a type of group agency? Or are you making the more limited claim that propaganda sometimes has these effects, but there are other things that can lead to group agency that aren't necessarily propaganda? Yeah, I don't think I'm committed necessarily to the idea that anything that brings it about that people can do things together um, constitutes propaganda. But I think to your first question, do I think the left should be engaged in propaganda, uh, where propaganda is like speech that shows people they can do things together? Yes. Um, I think like just to get back <laughs> oh, yeah. to... That's just an important point yeah, to you know. Pro-agit-prop here. Pro-agit-prop, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, just to, to get back to points that, that some of you made earlier, right? Just the sense that people, the sense that you can't do things together. The sense that like, like it's not that you're not sort of in principle on side with like left or progressive goals or whatever, but that there's no way to get there, that, that you've never seen an example in your lifetime of people, you know, in your workplace or community or whatever, acting together to, to get there. Like, that's uh, an incredibly enervating 
feature of our politics. And so the left obviously has to do things to demonstrate that it's possible after all. Sorry, I just want to follow up on that because I, I, I really like what you said there. I, I also think it really says something that I'm noticing increasingly when people want to talk about the, the capacity for groups to do things. It says something that so often seems like a lot of people have to go back to things like the French Revolution as their memory because there isn't an, an empirical real memory <laughs> of what it looks like. Yeah. And I just want to say like, yeah, that, that was you know something big, but that says something about the sort of paucity of our experience of having some radical group agency that we have to be like those those bros in the 1700s if only we had our own Bastille to storm we could do it and I'm, I'm wondering I think you know, an effective type of propaganda is you know, maybe this is my last question I'll ask you it's not simply just like meeting groups where they are but also creating groups that can do new things rather than groups that are simply trying to repeat vague memories of things that they read in books in the distant past. You know, so the possibility can propaganda also create groups rather than simply enabling existing groups or disenabling existing groups. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I confess that sometimes I think it's a fuzzy thing to figure out when, when a new group has been created as opposed to an existing group just like uh, moved on to be capable of something else, right? And in particular, if we think about how like structure-based organizing has functioned in like the American organizing tradition where like you take like an existing group, like a group of people in a workplace and then you, I mean, this is not unique to the United States obviously and like, but then they become a union that can do new things or you take like famously in the civil rights movement, you take the black church and these are people who already know each other and do things together, but then they come to function in a different way politically um, when they're organized in a certain way. I don't know if that's creating a new group or transforming the function of an existing group. And so I, that's the way in which I'd hedge on that question. But uh, I, I'm tempted to think propaganda can do all of the above. Cool. Well, thank you. That does it for us today. We'd once again like to thank Professor Megan Hiska for joining us. Megan, would you like to tell our audience about where they can find you online and about anything you've got coming up? Yeah, so I don't have a book to plug or anything, um, but I, I do have some forthcoming work that's about new synthetic media. So if you think about like the kinds of images and things like that you're creating with like Midjourney and Dolly and Stable Diffusion and like deep fake video and stuff like that, um, I've got kind of a project that's about thinking through the like negative and positive political potentialities of that kind of synthetic media used in political communication. And I've got sort of like preprints of that on my website. So you can find me there at meganhiska.com. Um, I don't really do social media a lot, but I am trying out threads. So if you want to find me somewhere, you can find me on threads. Cool. Thank thanks you. so much for having me. Yeah, thanks, Megan. New episodes of What's Left of Philosophy come out every two weeks wherever you get your podcasts. Also check us out on YouTube for videos and live streams. Before closing out today, we'd like to take a minute to thank some of the people who are supporting the show on Patreon. We couldn't do this without you, and we're really grateful. Today's new patrons are Martin Thomas Jones, James Corcoran, C, Gerardo Maya, Scott Edwards, Sarah Hassani, Jacob, Alex Donchamont, Jack Dorward, Alexander Crager, Stephen Beresford, Mark Lapointe, Vitaly Lerman, Magnus Mueller-Ziegler, Sam Schick, Jay, James, Anthony Principe-Contreras, Byron Miller, Luke Heppenstahl-West. Thank you all very much. If you too like what we're doing and want to support the show, please go to our website, leftofphilosophy.com, and click the support button. Patrons get access to exclusive content like lock episodes and bonus videos and access to our Discord server. 
In addition, you can support us by buying some What's Left of Philosophy merch, which you can also find through our website. Follow us on Twitter at Left to Fill, and don't forget to leave us good reviews and comments on your podcast app. With that, thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. Thank you again, Megan. Thanks. Thanks, man. Take care. Yeah, thanks. Bye-bye.